Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we continue our journey through Esther, Father, we ask that your spirit would um, just guide us, Lord. Help us to see um, what it is that you want us to see in this text. Um, Lord, I've, I've really enjoyed Esther and, and having to think and to slow down and, and, and to, really, to, to really consider what is happening in this book where you are so seemingly absent. Um, Father, we pray that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ashuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to to the king, I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which befell my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ashuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, it is written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of, his, of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to every province according to its script and to every people according to their language, as well as to all the Jews, according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ashuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ashuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in every, each and every province was published to all the peoples, 
so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on royal steeds. The decree was given out at the citadel of Susa. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I need to catch my breath. That was a mouthful of a chapter. The end, sort of, I, uh, during the first service, I accidentally said it. I was like, ah, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, you can't say that about the Bible. But it's sort of like a, a legal explanation, those last uh, few verses there. Um, but the, the story here as we pick up, it says, on that day. Uh, those, those very few, few words there, it makes me realize that we have to sort of uh, back up and, and, you know, if you're, you know, the Manny's just sort of rolled into church today and they're like, where are you guys at? What's been going on? And so Esther, as it begins, looking at the big picture, this is a book that the name God isn't mentioned. He's not mentioned anywhere. Prayer's not mentioned. There's no real, like, instruction to the nation of Israel. It's this, what we would call is a historical narrative. It's taking a piece of history. It's recording this story. The situation is is pretty bleak. Um, many people who've studied Esther, the, the thing that jumps out at us about this book is while God is not mentioned, there's no mention of prayer, the closest thing to like spiritualness is, is fasting is mentioned. Um, but it's clear that through this letter, while God is silent, the, the hand of his providence and sovereignty and direction and pres- uh, preservation. I didn't want to say preserves, but it's the same sort of uh, concept there. Um, <laughs> the preserving his people. His hand is evident. And, and although he's silent, there's a message that's loud here of, of, of hope. Um, throughout this story, we've turned to Romans chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read from my notes. In Romans chapter 15, 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so Paul, when he's addressing this Roman church, Paul the Apostle, who was, in my estimation, I don't think it's a stretch, I think he was probably the leading Jewish scholar second to only Jesus in, prob- in human history. Like he knew the Old Testament better than anybody. And then becoming an apostle, understanding how Jesus fits in the whole uh, redemption story of humanity. When he looks at the Old Testament, everything that was written, he says, all of this was written for our instruction, ultimately that we might have hope. And so this governing thought to me is asking the question like if i was in paul's class i'd be like excuse me paul uh can you explain to me how esther fits into this 
And going through Esther, trying to, how does this give us hope? And in stepping back, what we see is this is one case of many cases where the Jewish people as a whole faced total extinction. That an edict had been issued by the king of the world that that Xerxes or Asherus, whatever name you choose to call him, that same guy, he, he owned all of the land and this edict went out that all of the Jews were to be exterminated. And, and the, the, the question is, is if they were exterminated, what does that say about God? Because God back in Genesis chapter, th- starting in 3, then we see the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, chapters 12 and chapters 15, that God said through Abraham, through my chosen people, that there will be a Messiah that will come that will make way for salvation. And when you look at the, the history of the Jewish people, if this great promise was made, working behind the scenes is Satan. And the best way to disprove God is to have all of the Jewish people decimated. Because then the Messiah wouldn't come or couldn't come. And so here, as the Persian Empire had raised up, that Israel as a nation had already uh, a couple hundred years, I don't, I don't know exactly, but it was a few generations had elapsed since Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, have fallen. The people are in exile. Some of them have gone back. Uh, this, the people in Esther, they remained there. They, they didn't go back. They had sort of acclimated into the culture in which they were set. And, and Persia was this up-and-coming empire. And if, if Satan could just work it so that they're all destroyed, the Messiah couldn't come. We, we see this all the time. When Moses was born, what happened? Pharaoh had all of the children, all of the boys under two years old, executed. When Jesus was born, same thing. What other people has this happened? And when we see the the spiritual implications, who is Israel on the world stage? The fact that they exist today is a miracle. And so here in Esther, while God's not speaking, we see him powerfully preserving his people. And so this this queen arises. In the very first few chapters, we go from chapters 1 to chapters 2, like five years elapses. Between 2 and 3, like, like a, a, a years have elapsed through the story. But then we get to chapter 6, and it's 6, 7, 8. All of this is like just one day. And so when we read on that day, what day are we talking about? We have to turn back to chapter 6. If you turn back to chapter 6, you would read, During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So of all nights, the king, he can't sleep. He's suffering with insomnia. He, he has the world at his fingertips. He could have said, hey, get me three stand-up comedians and entertain me all night with comedy. He could have said, get me a musician. I want to have a concert. Get me a, a pianist or get me, I don't know, maybe pianos weren't invented back then. Don't, let me, like, don't read too much into my illustrations historically. He could have had whatever he wanted. He could have like, hey, I'm just going to enjoy the night. He says, hey, go get the Chronicles. This is like, go get all the newspapers. I mean, it wasn't the newspapers. It was like the minutes of, of, of the nation for years. He says, hey, go get, go get the Chronicles, and I want you to read to me. 
What's been happening? I think he's trying to lull himself back to sleep. I don't know that he's trying to do work. The guy just happens to grab the Chronicles from four years prior, and he starts reading. And as he's reading, he reads about what had happened earlier from four years ago. At the end of chapter 2, he reads about this guy, Mordecai, who is Queen Esther's cousin, but the king has no idea of the relationship between the two. And he reads in there that this guy, Mordecai, was at the gate, and basically the king's secret service, his two closest guys, were talking at the gate, and they were plotting an assassination on the king, and Mordecai reports it to the queen. The queen basically sends it up to all of the leadership. The trial was determined to see if this was true. It was determined it was true. Those guys were executed. We go into the next chapter, and we see that this evil guy, Haman, was advanced. It's like, whoa, what happened to Mordecai? And the king asked the same question, like, what, what, what do we do for Mordecai? If you were a king, would somebody protect you? If you don't reward them publicly and do something for them, you're not ensuring your safety later on. And they said, we didn't do anything for him. And so he's like, oh, great. Well, who's out in the court? Who is my advisor? Are some of my advisors, are, are, is anybody out there that I can talk to? He says, yeah, the Haman, your number two guy, he's out there. And so Haman was there. He was there early. Why was he there so early? Well, before all this stuff, we've read that Haman can't stand Mordecai. There's personal bad blood between him and the Jews. And Mordecai's, you know, great, 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 however, his grandpa was King Saul. They were at war. Basically, Saul killed all of the people except for some were spared. It turned really bad. There's bad blood between the people. Haman has everything, but this guy Mordecai will not bow before him. And so he asks his family the night prior. There's already been one banquet Esther had thrown. She's trying to figure out how she can save her people. She invites Haman and the king to this banquet. She She, at the king's request of what do you want, she says, well, I want to have another banquet tomorrow night. And so Haman leaves that banquet furious. Like he's on top of the world, but Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. He goes to his friends and family. He says, I'm a really great guy, but this guy just it eats me up. They say, hey, build a gallows, 75 feet tall. We'll build it tonight. Tomorrow, you execute Mordecai on it. And so Haman shows up before the king that morning. He walks in. The king says, hey, who's out there? Oh, Haman's out there. Haman's like, hey, the king wants to speak with you. Hey, this is perfect. They both want to talk about Mordecai, but very different circumstances. And so the king, he wants to honor Mordecai, but he never lays out who he wants to honor. He just tells Haman, hey, what, what's the protocol? What's the policy for somebody who protects the like for, for the, somebody that the king wants to honor, he didn't say the whole scoop of whatever. And Haman naturally is like, well, who, who else is there besides me? And he gives this whole, well, what he should have is have the most noblest prince. Take him out on the king's horse, the king's robes. Let him go throughout the whole town uh, with a guy on the horse saying, this is what happens to the man that the king wants to honor. The king says, that's a great idea. Do everything as you said. Go grab Mordecai at the front gate. Put him on the horse. Parade him around town, praising him. I is poor Haman. He does all of this. Happens for a couple hours. 
Um, I don't know when they stopped. I'm guessing a little bit before lunch. Haman goes home to his friends and, and wife, and they say, you're in so much, like, there's nothing you can do. If he's a Jew, you're going to fail. And I'm thinking, if I was Haman, it's like, where were you guys last night when you gave me the idea to have him executed? And as he's sort of processing it, the, the, uh, um, the royalty, I forget what they, what they called it, is uh, um, verse 14 of chapter 6, it says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs, eunuchs is the word I was looking for, these two royal eunuchs came and said, hey, time to go to the banquet. It's lunchtime. During the banquet, the king says, okay, this is the third time I've asked you, what is it that's bothering you? And during this banquet, Esther spills the beans. She explains that she's Jewish. She explains, uh, well, she doesn't explain she's Jewish. She explains that there is a person who set up a thing to have all of her people executed. King says, who is this guy? And she points a figure at Haman and said, it's this guy, the evil Haman. So as the story basically works itself out at the end of chapter 7, Haman is executed. I'm thinking now it's like 2 or 3 in the afternoon. On that day, so which started back in chapter 6, we're still on that day. Like all of this is one day, three chapters. We read that King Ashuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. In my mind, these two verses, what I have in my notes is literally that, that Haman's estate is settled. He's executed. We, we know that he's super wealthy. This whole execution of the Jews, he had volunteered to fund the whole operation. The king said, you don't have to do that. So he's wealthy. He had all sorts of possessions. When, when, when somebody like this was executed, all of their possessions, it defaulted to the king. The king now is in possession of all this stuff. He says to Esther, all of the stuff, I'm basically giving it to you. That's your settlement. Esther, in turn, basically gives it to Mordecai. He, um, Esther, at this point, says, I want Mordecai to come up here. And Mordecai comes up to meet with the king, and Esther discloses who she is in relation to Mordecai. See, the king knew about Mordecai, but he had no idea that they were actually related. They, they were obviously both Jews at this point. He knows that. But he didn't understand that this is her like cousin, her family member. As the story's developing, I, when Esther started and as things started happening, I, I don't want to, if there are any beauty pageants in here, I know offense is like meant at all. But as the story sort of unfolded with Esther, I kind of see her as like a ditzy sort of beauty queen, like not really grasping what's going on. She's getting her nails done. She's getting her beautified. She's just at the spa all day. The, all of the Jews are, are slated to be executed, and she doesn't really have a clue. But then as the story's developing, she is shrewd. She is wise. She was killing me for these weeks. It's like, why didn't she have Haman executed right away? And we see that she has something that, I'm, that God still works, is patience. That she's allowing God to sort of let the situation sort of form up. 
letting everything sort of culminate so that God could sort of uh, run everything. And, and now Haman's been executed. Haman was the king's number two guy. Maybe, I don't know what the equivalent, I don't know if, I don't know if it's like, a, uh, if this was the United States, if this would be like the vice president, the attorney general, but it was somebody very powerful, very close, his top advisor. Well, his top advisors, he's executed. And so Esther's like, hey, I want to introduce you. This is, you know, Mordecai, that the whole, this morning, the guy that you had go, you know, last night you couldn't sleep. You found out that you could honor him. He's actually my cousin. Brilliant on her part. Like, he's in need of an advisor. And so we see that he takes the signet ring and he passes it to Mordecai. And we read this, but we have to understand, like, put yourself in Mordecai's shoes. This morning, like, it's two or three in the afternoon. It was just this morning. He's down at the gate doing his business. Whatever, I mean, not his, his uh, he's working. <laughs> Sorry, my mind. I, he, uh, he was working. He, and there he is. All of a sudden, Haman comes, and he's like, I need to put you up on this horse, I need to parade you around. He's like, what is going on? Is this a big setup? Is this, like, are you going to take me to the gallows that you built to execute me? And that happens for a couple, then he drops him off. He's like, okay, you're back at work. He goes back. Haman goes his own way. Haman's like, I have no idea what is happening today. Haman, who wants to have me executed, just picked me up on, on the royal horse, threw me in the king's robes, paraded around town saying, what a great guy I am. I have no idea what's happening. Next thing he knows, he's being summoned to be with the king at the queen's request. And then the king hands him the signet ring and essentially has appointed him as his number two guy. Like, just imagine if you're just about your business, the next thing you know, it's like, well, you're the vice president of the United States. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I think we'd all be a little not sure how to process this. Like, what just happened? Like, and smaller, like the day that I was asked to be the pastor here, there was like, I drove away and it was like, Anna, what just happened? Like, am I, I guess I am the pastor. We'll see. I mean, I got a key and everything to the church. So <laughs> we'll see how next Sunday goes. I mean, I'll come up here and we'll. And so, so this is sort of the situation. If this was a movie, we would be cheering. We would be waiting for the credits to roll up. Right? Happy ending. Haman is hanged. His estate is settled with Queen Esther and Mordecai. Woohoo! Everything's up. But nothing has changed. See, she didn't. Remember, go back to chapter 7, verse um, 3. And if we were to go back even further, when Mordecai was challenging her, he says, You need to do something. And she ends with, I'll go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. So be it. And then when she goes before the king and the king says, Esther, what is your request? And in chapter 7, verse 3, the queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition. Sort of let my life be the deposit. If my actual request can be fulfilled, even if it means that I'm executed, that my life is taken, I'm fine with it. And she says, and my people as my request. See, her whole question, when this all started, her goal wasn't just to have Haman hanged. That, I mean, that's kind of like 
frosting, I guess they call it, you know, like, that's a good, that's nice. But her aim wasn't at all to get Haman, like, I, I don't want to say that her aim wasn't to get him killed, but, but she was there for her people, for Israel, for, for her fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who were slated for execution. And so now there's the whole estate has been settled, but she's still there like the problem exists. This edict that was issued that not even the king that we know from history couldn't be revoked. My people are still slated to be executed, annihilated, to have all of their goods taken. And so verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king and fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews, the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So we're almost like going back to square one. She goes before the king. She falls down. She's crying. She's weeping. Well, last week I said that she, in this journey, when, she had, when the king asked, what do you want for the third time? As she starts kind of with pleasantries about, well, like, King, if you find me pleasing, if I, if, if I can speak, this is... She, when she stepped over the line and said, my people have been slated for destruction, she sort of had reached the point of no return. I sensed that all her poise was... I imagine that you could see her chest, like the heart beating, shaking by the time she points at Haman, that everything was on the line. And the king sort of, we left it last week at verse 10 of chapter 7. So they hanged hangman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided that, that at this point, the king is like, we're good to go. But Esther's like, oh no, I like everything kind of like, everything sort of reset. Like, I think that the king thought that the one request was that to have Haman executed. And so now she falls at his feet and it's funny reaching comment. Commentators don't think they don't like to think that she put her life at the line, but when I see the king extending his scepter, everything that I see in Esther means that when the king puts his scepter up, that means that whatever the actions, whatever happened, it meant that that person was supposed to be executed and the scepter was to stop it. So I think she throws her life back on the line and is, is weeping and crying and petitioning the king, and the king's like, what now? Like the scepter's up over her life. All I know is when the scepter goes up, that's not good. So I have a hard time when this comment, like, this seems to be still a big deal. And so, so Esther arose and stood before the king, verse 5. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and if the matter seems proper to the king, and if I, I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote, to destroy the Jews who are in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? She says, well, we need to revoke. We need to, please, can you, rev- can you revoke? Can you revoke this, this edict that was written? Can you do like something? How am I supposed to endure this? If I, like, am I supposed to just sit back and watch my people destroyed? everything's fine for her. You know, hey, Mordecai earlier, when he was challenging her to go before the king, he said, don't, you, don't think that when all this goes down that you're going to be safe in the king's palace. 
But I think at this point, now, now Mordecai's number two, she's the queen, she's, I think she's safe. Like, she could have walked away at this point, I, I think, personally. But she's still, she wants to finish the job. Do it right the first time. I hear, like, I see this, and I kind of hear, I hear my, my dad as a kid always nagging me, like, if you're going to do something, do it right. Finish the job. See, I don't know that I'd want to finish the job. This, but we see Esther so courageous finishing the job. She didn't come to get rich. She didn't come. She came to save her people. And the king's reaction, like, I, look what he says. He's, so King Ashwerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. I see, so a lot of people kind of see this dealing with the first edict. I see this sort of differently. So the king, she asked for this request and the king basically says, listen, I gave you Haman's estate. I gave Mordecai my signet ring that used to be his. He's now my number two guy. He says, now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the, uh, the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. And so this is kind of what I, this is what I sort of see going back to when I first came here. I'd been here for I don't know how long. I'm talking like three weeks I've been the past. I'm still kind of like, I got the key, I got business cards made, but I, I still wasn't like, I mean, I, I was still like in the military. Like, I mean, I still felt like I was really a Navy SEAL playing a pastor, you know, kind of like this is sort of kind of, you know, I'm kind of the pastor. And, and I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody had like called me and said, hey, can I borrow, um, can I can I borrow the tables and chairs? I'm like, I don't know. Call this lady who's been in the church forever. She'll tell you if she can borrow them or not. Like, I don't have that authority. And I get a call from that lady like, what? You, why are these people calling me about borrowing the tables? I don't know. You've been here like the longest. You're the one in it. Like, aren't, isn't that your, like, I don't know if I. And she's like, you're the pastor. That's your, you do whatever you. Don't have people calling me. You're the pastor now. It's your job. We called you to restart this. You do what you have to do. I was like, I guess I am the pastor here. Called the people back. I said, I'm the pastor. You can borrow those tables if you want. How many do you need? You need chairs too? I'll loan you the chair. Whatever. Just let me know. I'm the new sheriff in town. I was like... But it was like this whole sort of, you know, I was telling Anne about that. She's like, yeah, this is like the first time you told me that I had like full access to your cordless drill. She's like, I always thought it was like yours. I'm like, no, like what's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. Like, she's like, yeah, I felt empowered. Like the cordless drill is like fair game. And so what I kind of see is, is, is like, I, poor Mordecai was supposed to be hanged today, right? He's just down at the city gate like three hours ago. Now he's got these robes on, the signet ring. And they're like, we well, still have this problem. He's like, listen, I hang the guy, I put you in charge. This is how, it didn't look like this, but this is the best illustration I have on me right now. I was like, that signet ring I gave to you, you basically, you write something, you just put it there. 
When you do it, it's as if I'm saying it can't be revoked. You solve the problem. It's like, oh, this is, oops, sorry, wrong side. <laughs> it's like, this isn't a joke. This is, I'm the number two guy. I got Haman's spot. I can just write edicts. All right. And so then we get to the yada, yada, yada section. Like, and I don't say, I say that reverently. But verses 9 through 12 It sort of rehashes what an edict was. If we were to go back to chapter 3, if you'd hold, keep your spot here, turn back a couple pages to chapter 3. In verse 13, hold your place there. Um, and if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, these are sort of... Um, Like there's like there's important things, like the pink slip to your car is important. the The owner's manual to your car is important, but it's not like that. It it's useful at times, but at verse one of chapter one, in describing Ashuerus or King Xerxes, it said, "Who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days, um, as King Ashuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the." Citadel in Susa. So it's kind of explaining historically, like, who is this King Ashuerus? And then we go to chapter 3, verse 13, and we read, after Haman had approached the king to get the edict written about the execution of the Jews, it said letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, both young and old, women and children, on the day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize the possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict was issued in every province as was published to all the peoples that they should be ready for this day. So these, that, or that edict was translated into every language. It was sent out. It just happened that it was sent out on Passover Eve. This is the eve of Passover. This letter went out to all of the people to let them know that in a few months, like, whatever the actual date was, but it's, if this was in the spring, it would have been like in December. On this one day, it's open season on the Jews. You can kill them, men, women, children, kill them, annihilate them, destroy them, those three things, right? It says, um, well, we'll get there. But, it, but what was said was that you can basically absolutely destroy them, take their plunder. And it was like a 24-hour window that this could happen. The whole town went in an uproar. People were confused. What is the key? like? What is happening? And so then we come back to chapter eight, and we see a lot of these same similarities. So, so verse nine. So the king's scribes were called, and at that time on the third day, you can see all of the timing. It says about the providences, and the, it sort of explained the edict. So, so a new edict was going to be written that was going to go to all of the provinces in all of the languages to all of the people. Verse 10, he wrote in the name of King Ashwaris and sealed it with the king's signet ring, sent letters by courier. So he kind of said, okay, this is, uh, Mordecai has this new power. Let's, uh, let's check it out. Let's make our first edict. So they, so they do it. They call everybody in in verse 11. We're told what was written in that edict that was to go out. In them, that's the letters of the edict. 
the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Those three words are the same words that are used in the previous edict. The entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, to, pl- uh, to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces, King Ashwares, the 13th day of the 12th month, that's the month there, the same exact day as the, the previous edict. So on that previous edict, this day would come. On that day, the Jews are open season. This new edict says on that day, the Jews can arm themselves. If they see you coming, if you look at them crossly, if they even are under the slightest suspicious that you mean them any harm, they can whack you, all your people, all your stuff, and they can take all of your property. This created great fear. We'll go to the very last verse of chapter. And many among the peoples in the land became Jews. We think, woohoo, there's a bunch of converts. But, we, the, but it says, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. I'm joining their team. I, I don't want to like, uh, hi, my Jewish neighbor. And he's like, you looked at me the wrong way. I, take, I got the edict. So this armed them. And so verse 13 through 14, we see the edicts going out by, by the couriers, the Pony Express. They're taken everywhere. And then in verse 15 and through 17 here, this is sort of what I'm racing to get to. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in his royal robes, blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every providence and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. There's a lot here, and we're short on time because Josh took so much time early on. You know, <laughs> just, just, just kidding. So, so where I want to end, when I look at this chapter, when I look at the whole of Esther, what I see is it starts with super, super, super darkness, super hopelessness, super, super discouragement. And then now as we're transitioning, there's like this like joy, relief, lightness, joy, honor, gladness, joy. This weight is off. And the story's going to get nasty next week. There's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be, like, just because they were given this doesn't mean that people are going to try to, like, it's going to get, there's, the Jews are still going to have to defend themselves. And then when I think of Esther, like this celebration to see God's provision for them. When you look at the whole of the scripture, is the whole of scripture is sort of about hope. I came across this quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton that says, For solemnity, that's sadness, I probably said it the wrong way, flows out of men naturally, but laughter is a leap. It is easy to be heavy, hard to be light. Satan fell from the force of gravity. Now, when you think about this, what this guy ultimately is saying is that for humans, The easiest, most natural disposition for us is to be negative, critical, upset, angry. Uh, The sky is falling. Everything's horrible. You know, country music. My girlfriend broke up with me. I have a tear in my beard. Like all of like this is like that's 
natural. But to have laughter, to have joy, this cuts across everything that is human. Like that takes faith. And when I look at the scriptures, it seems that there's like, if there's any, if there's a message in there that God wants us as his children to be joyful. There are two preachers who have had a great influence in my life. They're like my favorite. It's Charles Swindoll and Alistair Begg. And these two guys I really appreciate because there's, I don't want to say lightness in their preaching, but they are happy. And one thing that Charles Swindoll says that's always stuck with me He says, I don't know why I go around and it always seems like Christians are baptized in lemon juice. And like, we can be happy, we can smile. We can be joyful. I go as far as to say that God wants us to be joyful. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. Joy, if we define it, joy defined is... I had to look it up. An attitude of pleasure and well-being. See, now we take that joy and how do we attain it? We think bigger house, nicer house, maybe just if I had my mortgage paid off, if I had a house, if I, if I had a car, if I had a nicer car, if I had, like we want to accumulate stuff. And we find that with stuff, there's emptiness. It doesn't deliver the joy. And I don't, don't see this as like the prosperity. God wants you to be joyful. He wants you to be happy. But to attain that, it doesn't come through the means that you think it does. This is why I love going to Mexico or Mongolia or where like third world countries. You go there and you meet believers who have nothing. Not their health, not possessions, not food, not anything. And there's joy. And and we as Americans, we think, oh, we want to get them stuff. And we look at our kids and they're obnoxious. They have everything. Nintendo, I don't even think Nintendo exists anymore. But man, when I was a kid, all I wanted was Nintendo and I never got one. I still like, all I wanted was a Nintendo. And I thought that Nintendo would bring me joy. We like... Give our kids, and our kids are punks. They're not happy. And I say kids, but it's us. We can fall in the same trap. And this is in three weeks we're starting First Peter. I've wanted to study First Peter, and I want to end with a couple verses. If you'll turn with me to First Peter, this is practice to help you to find it in the Bible. It's near the end. If you go to the very end of the Bible, you'll hit Revelation. Then you'll hit First, Second, Third John. And like right before that is Second Peter, and then there's First Peter. First Peter chapter one, verse six. I've wanted to teach First Peter for a long time, probably because I need it. Peter's this guy in the Gospels who I absolutely love. He like runs with his mouth, and then his, he doesn't cash those checks. Jesus, I'll go with you to the death. They arrest Jesus. I don't even know that guy. Like it says in one of them, like he starts swearing so that he wouldn't be like identified with them. I, I love him. And see, now he re- writes his gospel after Jesus has ascended and has left and years has gone by. He's aged. He would ultimately be crucified for his faith. 
the church was under severe, like, persecution. Like, crucifying Christians because if you want to be like your Lord, then we're going to crucify you. We're going to make your life miserable. We're going to throw you to the lions. Like, they were under extreme. And when I see Peter, this, this, the whole, like, message of Peter is teaching us how to be joyful, not based on circumstances. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, like highlight trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, that's trials, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Like there are not words to express the joy and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. God wants us to be happy, to be joyful. And joy doesn't come through stuff. It doesn't come through the American dream. We stand condemned because of our sin. At the very beginning pages of the scripture, God says, I'm going to send a solution to your problem. My son, he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to be executed. He's going to die. He'll be buried for your sins. And then he's going to raise from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven so that you might have life. If you have Christ, you have everything. Without Christ, you have nothing. You're condemned. There is plenty to be upset about. But when you're a Christian... That means that you're a sinner who's been saved by grace. That you're going to enter into his presence. So it doesn't matter if you lose your life. It doesn't matter if you have cancer. It doesn't matter. We're all going to die. Uh, sorry if that was a spoiler alert. I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> we all are going to die. It's like, you know, they say it starts when you start. But I think it starts happening around 22, 23, like somewhere. The downward slope I mean, it's hitting me. I'm turning 40 in like three months. Like, I'm like, I'm like on the, and you just don't know how long the pendulum is, you know? But it's like, you have to start, like Solomon says, that it's better to be in the house of mourning to recognize. Because when we recognize where we're going, that Christ has paid it all, and how does Esther fit into all of this? Because they shouldn't survive, and God's word proved true. And so when he says that it's by faith you are saved of grace, we can trust him. And that should bring smiles. We can be happy. We can love one another. We can be nice to our neighbors. Josh made me late. Father, we do thank you that we can be joyful. Lord, we long for this. Lord, this is a prayer that I've prayed really since I was a beginning Christian. Lord, I desire to have the joy that's that your scriptures tell us is available. And so, Father, I confess that, that I live in the flesh so often. I think worldly. And so, Father, I confess that to you. 
Father, I pray that you would give me an eternal perspective. Father, help me to understand what the main things are, to understand that like this great book of Esther, your word has proven to be true over and over and over again, that we can trust you. I pray for those in this room, Lord, that are in different places. Lord, we, are, we welcome those who, who haven't trusted in you. Lord, we, we pray that um, you would continue to help them on their journey, that they would understand who Christ is, that they would be able to reach the place, Lord, that they would understand that he paid it all, that you love us, that you want us to enter into a relationship with you. And for those of us who have trusted in you, Father, I pray that you would help us to fully trust, to walk with you, to, Lord, that we would, that you'd give us clarity, Lord, to show us how much joy is available to us, show us how we attain this joy. Lord, we look in all the wrong places so often. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring us back to Christ, light that fire again in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.